welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Neil Fox, and joining me, as always, I'm delighted to say, is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. How are you? Hello, Neil. I'm I'm okay, actually. I've had a cold all week. I picked up some strain of illness in uh, in Sunderland coming back from the conference. So I was um, on a, a, a overly crowded train with a combination of Sunderland supporters who were happy because they'd won and drunk revelers because uh, it was Halloween and obviously picked something up. So I was really bad through the week with my voice and not sleeping and stuff, but it's getting better. But it, uh, if anybody thinks I'm affecting a very deep, booming voice, I'm tr- doing my Orson Welles impression. You know, my name is Orson Welles. I wrote and directed this picture. Um, and I might keep I might keep doing that for the rest of my life. Do it. Yeah, I was going to say it sounded like you caught Barry Whiteitis uh, on the train. Let's get this podcast on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a it's actually a, a good um, it's a good uh, it's a good segue into today's um, episode, really, which is very much about voice. Uh, and one of the things, one of the notes I made, um, which is something I've thought about thought about quite a lot when listening to our guest on their on their own film podcast is is what a great voice that they have. So, Dario, tell us tell us what we're in for today. Yeah, so um, I spoke to Rico Galliano, who is the producer, writer, host, and I think editor as well of the movie podcast. And um, we do have film, other film podcasters on from time to time, and only the ones I think that we admire and like. And I've admired the movie podcast since since it came out for various reasons, which you'll hear on the on the interview. But I'm I'm now glad. I'm glad to say that I like Rico now that I've actually spoken to him. So it's kind of like a um, a double plus good, as it were. Yeah, I mean the movie podcast. I think I, I just love the rigor and the depth of the research, the the structure of the narrative narrativization, the editing, um, this sort of audio documentary, film audio documentary style is really sort of embedded in a sense of place and time through the sound design. Um, we discuss a little bit, a little bit of his background, his cinephilic origin story, uh, becoming a critic, moving over from radio to podcasting, and then moving on to on to movie. Um, obviously, the process of making the podcast, and we talk about various series and episodes. And like you say, he's got one of those smooth NPR voices that that is really easy to listen to. And uh, yeah, it, it kind of makes me want to affect some kind of voice as I've just discussed um, before. But I think there's a lot in this for film people and for podcast people alike. Yeah, agree. I, I, I wondered, listen to it, I wonder if he has like, if it's a sorry to bother you kind of thing where his real voice is something very different and he can just switch into Rico the podcaster. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure it's authentic. I mean, yeah, it's a really... It's a really fantastic conversation. Um, I was sorry to miss it. I was hoping to be part of it, but the storms that battered this week just made it my internet, which is tentative at the best of times. But but to listen to it as a as a listener, I thought, I thought was 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 really enjoyable, and I've got a lot to to draw out. And uh, yeah, so I think maybe we should just get that in, into that now. Actually, I took my very first film studies class. Was it was it was an amazing, you just like drop into the the kind of art world, art house world. I was uh, like, I came to film school. I remember in the um, late eighties, 
going. My idea of an art film was like Repo Man okay. and uh, Something Wild. Yeah, I know, yeah. because they were kind of punky aesthetic. Yeah. You know, great movies, by the way. I still stand by them, but hardly the, the most difficult film. And it was like the only, because I was a freshman applying late for my classes, the first film studies class that I could do to get into was called International Cinemas. Wow. Uh, new International Cinemas. New in quotes. But it was like uh, French New Wave. It was a survey of New Wave. Uh, uh, so it was like French New Wave, German New Wave, Brazilian New Wave, and Japanese New Wave. So it was kind of like, I remember that sounds great. It, it would Today I'd be like, great, I get to do that for my job for a while. It sounds awesome. But like, I just remember my first, first day was fine because I started, you know, it was French New Wave. So they started by playing Detour, which is a totally entertaining noir, of course. Yeah. And to give you an idea of the kind of bedrock of the French New Wave, like what they were building off of. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be cool. And then like breathless, I was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> what are you doing to me? I don't understand. And then uh, then I got it. What's that kind of stuff then? I mean, because it's interesting, We Neil and I, we talk a lot about our respective narratives, our influences as young people, and then how you at our age now define that story about how you become a film person. I mean, and it sounds there as well that you that you came to university and then discovered kind of like art house in that in that sense because that's kind of similar to me rather than getting younger. But I don't know. Have you got a kind of origin story of you know Rico, the young the young film buff kind of thing? Oh yeah, I mean, like everybody has their film buff story. I mean, it starts I'm, I'm just probably not dissimilar from bazillions of people in our field. It's like you know Star Wars. All of those kind of easy things. I had the the benefit of having a much older father, so he was uh, actually watching a lot of older films. So I did see classics like Citizen Kane when I was still in high school, and I'm like maybe even younger than high school, might have been in school, and uh, all that kind of stuff. But I originally got into you know just big blockbuster science fiction, oh, right. okay. kind of stuff. Like it was instantaneous. Star Wars made me instantaneously a film buff, and really made me like I saw that movie. I think. That movie actually was a good movie uh, to get people into being cinephiles because you wanted to watch it over and over again, which made you start to pay attention to all the little details of it and and also how it was made. Like, how was it doing this to me that I want to keep going back and seeing it? So actually, and it was the first movie that I remember. I mean, I'm sure this had happened before, but it was the first movie I remember there were lots of things in the media about how it was made yeah like how they did the special effects probably 2001 had the same thing going on before i was born but sure it was the first in my memory where it was like how did they make those special effects happen how did they do the lightsaber where did what was the background of where this movie came from in george lucas's mind which also then takes you backwards into film history because he was drawing on westerns space operas of the past and stuff so it's actually like a pretty good way to realize that there's a lot going on in any movie, I guess. Although I'm not sure I processed it that way. Mm. I also really got into film criticism because I wanted to read anything that I could about that. Movie. Right. So I remember read any any of the books that came out about it. There were also books about the making of Star Wars and where it came from. And there was a novelization. I remember the annuals and the sort of, uh, yeah, the popular culture stuff that came out around that. and And it really sort of, I think maybe for the first time in a mainstream film fed into the idea that there was a culture around mm. cinema or around a movie for sort of our adolescent generation, I, I suppose, growing up at that time. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, it's also interesting. I was so into that movie 
even though everybody was into that movie, I was so into it mm. that I was an ostracized geek about it. Like I just couldn't stop talking no. about it or like pretending Star Wars on the playground. Right. Oh God, it's the Star Wars guy. Get him to show up. Exactly. <laughs> also gave me the hint of like, you can get into things enough that the real world will kind of go, You're, that's too much. You may want to find some other people like you to talk about this. But, right. Um, but then from there, I remember just getting into all, it didn't even have to be good. I mean, it was such a, it's like late seventies feels like a, as much as we sort of enjoy a lot of it now, in a lot of ways, it feels like a dismal time. I remember seeing the movie Meteor. Do you remember that film? Yeah, I do. I do remember Meteor. Yeah. Really? Or Concord 77 and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all that, all the disaster f- films from the late seventies. Yeah. I remember them well. I would not be the first to like identify them by saying that the movie posters for all of them had pictures of all of the huge stars that were in it along the bottom of the poster. Yeah. Maybe to distract from the fact that the movie was going to suck and that the concept was ridiculous. But Meteor was about a meteor that was going to destroy Earth. And I remember even at that age going in and saying, thinking, you know, this isn't probably that great, but I'm going to watch it anyway because it's a movie with space in it. Sure. And it had the Deton feel, didn't it, as well? Because it was the Russians and the Americans getting together kind of thing to to blow up this, you know, that deep impact it was, basically. Was it? I don't remember a thing of it. <laughs> I have not seen it since. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sadder than you, really. I remember the plot, you know? Wow, now you're a film being. No, but um, like I, uh, I just remember the shot of the meteor, which looked even then, it was like, this is a rock that they have filmed and there's like superimposed the earth in the background as it wobbles towards it. But seeing all, so I would see all those things. I remember seeing Xanadu and liking it, you know, unabashedly. Like now I can like it ironically. Like there was wonderful things about Xanadu. The music is actually really wonderful and everything, but it is actually a pretty poor movie. But I remember just like loving it anyway because it had like roller skating in it. Anyway, but like all that kind of stuff. And then my dad getting me into, you know, older movies. As I said, I remember seeing, I think, All About Eve early on and Sunset Boulevard pretty early on, maybe even in middle school, possibly early high school. But then it was like Steven Spielberg movies, sure, were the thing. I got into all of those. And I remember E.T. especially. There was a moment, I think, in every film geek's life where you want to be a filmmaker and i it was more than a moment for me i went to college thinking that i would still be one not realizing that i'm just not cut out for the job and i saw all these but i remember that was the first time when the director was like uh, it, steven spielberg was on the cover of time magazine for star wars it was still like a picture of darth vader or of a c3po and r2d2 but it was like on time magazine there was steven spielberg with et's head over him and I remember getting really interested in that and being like, oh, so like you could be a big, like a celebrity making these things too. That like seemed enticing to me. But anyway, those, his movies were just, of course, just the greatest. I saw all of us, E.T. a million times, Poltergeist, Toby Hooper, obviously, but everybody kind of intimates that Spielberg had his hands in it. And then this is now the younger folk in our audience, well, the younger folk, the, the younger middle-aged folk in our audience are going to take me to task for this. But it was uh, The Goonies. I remember seeing it because, again, Spielberg produced it, and I would see anything with his name on it. And I remember at the time being just old enough. This is now I'm in high school, and I remember like middle middle high school, probably like, I don't know, 10th grade, something like that. And watching it and thinking, I think I may be too old for this. I feel like this is, I'm, I may be outgrowing this kind of 
like youthful fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's something like there must be something more. And then I started dating somebody slightly older than me. Wow, she was probably sixteen, and she was into alternative music and alternative movies, and got me into all of that stuff first through the music. And then she had a, I remember a laser disc player, and she, we got Clockwork Orange out, and that was like, oh, this is how different things can be. That just blew my mind and every way right and i could go off on the the impact that that had on me in terms of like portrayal of violence and like thinking about violence in cinema and why it was like so attractive and repellent at the same time that could go on for the rest of this episode but that totally made me go okay in the same way that there's alternative music different than the you know pop that i was listening to there is this cinema world out there that i can now dive into Repo Man followed shortly after that in the theaters. It was like it came out in the theaters. And then there were places, there were rep theaters in my hometown of Pittsburgh at that time where I saw all, started going to all of the kind of canon of midnight movies, Harold and Maude, all of that kind of stuff. So that was what I was into by the time I went to film school. And then film school is really what indoctrinated me to the, you know, true art side of it. You went to the University of Pittsburgh, but what, was that the in, with the intention to become a filmmaker? And if it was, when did it kind of change to criticism? Or you know, was there a sort of realization that there was a different path rather than just rather than making you know the the, the analysis aspect? I definitely went in wanting to be a filmmaker at the time. That was not necessarily the school that you went to to be a filmmaker. It was known for its film studies program, but there was a local, and God bless it. I wish it was still around. Um, a local film co-op that had been around for a long time and became, I think, the longest running film co-op until it finally died in the late 2000s, like a few years ago, called Pittsburgh Filmmakers. And they taught film classes through all of the colleges in Pittsburgh. So you could take filmmaking classes as well as the film studies classes at Pitt. And it was close to my home. I lived in Pittsburgh already, so it seemed like, well, I'll just do that. And I went there, I took the film studies track because that's how you could get a major but i really wanted to make movies gotcha. and it was in the process of making student films that i realized it just isn't for me because it's too typical like i i wanted to what was in my brain to just magically appear on a screen and it's really hard like <laughs> there are filmmakers that i've spoken to and i'm sure you've spoken to i mean many of them i think even can't remember who said that it's like building a house or something like making a film is really like a meticulous process of construction or can be. I mean, obviously there are people that throw that yeah. right out the window, yeah. but like there's a certain, it's not like I've been a writer, you know, I've written screenplays and little and short stories and it's like, you just think of it, put it on the page, but now it's got to happen. And it was like, it's a pain. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I then later on when I came to Hollywood to, you know, kind of write for movies, I was getting PA jobs and just being a PA is a miserable existence for me. I'm sure a lot of people like get very excited by it and then they want to be on film sets all the time. Film sets are like, it's, it's seriously like being on a construction site. It feels like for me and I honor and admire anybody who is doing it. Just not my metabolism. So it was like somewhere in the middle of that realizing that I'd like, I'd rather be kind of commenting on and talking to people that make these movies and figuring out how they do their genius than doing it myself. I often think that film, film critics have something of the romantic in them because it, it's like, you know, once you, once you get into the mechanics of what's behind the camera, you just realize the labor and also the fact that, that everybody is just basically 
solving the, the the latest problem that crops up rather than you know the idea of the sort of auteur vision is really a, a, an incredible mythology i think so yeah it, that, that chimes a lot so how did you how did you move across to kind of like radio in terms of the the focus of criticism i mean i know i, know, I mean we can talk a little bit about the the difference maybe between audio and written criticism but you were in in radio pretty quickly in, in shows like i mean you know, reading your biography, I'm going to quote a couple of shows, but maybe you can tell us what they're like because the UK audience won't know, won't have heard of these. So Marketplace, All, all Things Considered, Weekend America, and The Savvy Traveller. I mean, we, we I have no idea what any of those are. So maybe you could give us a quick kind of idea about your sort of, you know, move across the radio. Uh, you know, don't feel too bad. So many of those, nobody here will have heard of either. Okay. Um, <laughs> so public radio... What, most, as I understand it, you're going to probably correct me. Uh, most of the radio in the UK is public radio, correct? Most of it is. Mm. You know, well, most is, of it is a BBC, yeah, which which is right. the similar thing. Yeah, yeah. So in uh, America, obviously, that's not the case. It's well, maybe not obviously, but in America, it's not the case. It's mostly commercial, and then there's public radio. There, there are bands of the dial that are set aside for public radio, and they are. Oh, I could get into the whole mechanics of how public radio operates, but it's too ridiculous <laughs> to get into. But there is certainly a subsect of American population who depends on public radio and is really in public radio, and it's considered in some ways, some would consider it the most boring of all radio. <laughs> but for those of us who really love it, it's like the lifeline where you get the best news, like the best storytelling and all that kind of stuff. Marketplace was a uh, business show, believe it or not, but my job was to tell the sort of like colorful stories behind economics and business. And it's a show that was built with a certain amount of uh, humor built into it. There's a certain amount of, uh, you know, irony that show didn't take everything at face value, especially at the time. <laughs> so I was doing kind of like the human features, human interest features behind stuff. I remember doing a feature in the Netherlands about how the Dutch had invented this offspring of golf called boring golf. It was like a farmer's, it's farmer's golf is what that translates to. It was like farmers reusing their land and making this like golf-like game that you literally played through their fields. And like, if you hit a cow, you got like a stroke taken off and things like that. And it was starting to make some of these farms more money than their actual farms were making. And therefore it became an economic story. That was the kind of stuff I was doing. How did I get there? How did I get to the point where I'm doing that? Or all things considered, actually for all things considered, which is a huge public radio show, I was doing music reviews because that's always been an interest of mine too. I didn't actually do that much for them. Um, and then Savvy Traveler was stories about travel. It was like, uh, This American Life is the big, well-known American uh, sort of storytelling show where people tell true stories about amazing things that have happened in their lives. Savvy Traveler was like that, except in people traveling. And that was actually the show I wanted to get on when I got into public radio. And I did almost immediately, and then it almost immediately folded. Like, it's seven months of me getting up, which is how I ended up on Marketplace. It was produced by the same people. And how did I end up in radio from film? I came out to AFI, the American Film Institute, to study screenwriting in LA. And after that, I got jobs in television. And this was not in our current moment of platinum era television where there's so much great stuff being done. It was mostly reality TV being done at the time. Oh, okay. You know, the best stuff I did was um, animated, kids animated stuff. That was the most fun. But uh, when I started, I worked on two uh, reality shows 
And all of a sudden, whereas before I would wait a long time between gigs to get another gig, which is not atypical of screenwriters, suddenly I was getting tons of offers to work in reality because that's where all the work was. And I realized that I could go down that path and that at the end of it would be a horrible shell of me that hated himself. So I was like, I got to get out of this field. This is nowhere to go. Uh, and it was like, I've always done journalism on the side. I've always been a freelance journalist, like sort of writing about film back home in Pittsburgh and about music a lot in Pittsburgh. It was kind of like one of the music guys that wrote for the local paper and was like, well, maybe I'll just keep doing this journal. I was actually doing a little bit of journalism just for some extra money freelance. And it was like, well, maybe I'll do that full time. But I like telling stories and I like kind of the the thing about film is that you can bring in music and sound and like all of the effects and all of these different kind of art things and put them together and it was like well maybe i'll do radio because there's a performative aspect of it you when you're on the mic and you're telling a story and you can use the sound that you're getting and create kind of the cinematic thing in somebody's head and it's like 10 times easier <laughs> as well and cheaper uh to do that than it is to do visuals, which is, by the way, something that Hollywood is discovering about podcasts. It's one of the reasons they're buying up IP from podcasts, a cheap way of testing out their IP. So that's how I sort of got into it. And like the only place that that was happening was in public radio. The rest of most of American radio is music and mostly pop music or country or classical. And so that was like the place to go. There was some of it being done in my town. The Savvy Traveler and uh, Marketplace were produced out of the same offices in downtown LA. I knew some of the people that were involved. So I started doing freelancing and it just kept going. This is interesting. I was just thinking about the the sort of crossover moment. You know, well, it's not really a crossover, but the, the you know, the moment when podcasting becomes a thing. And I do... Um, quite a bit of research on podcasting as a as a media it's one of the areas i've sort of gone into from doing the, the cinematologists in a way but i was just wondering as somebody who's gone into podcasting and now obviously producing the movie movie podcast which we'll talk about in a, in a minute just from that background you know that research background for me it's interesting interesting to ask when was podcasting sort of become you know in your mind oh this is something that actually is apart from radio or different from radio and do you see it in that way or do you see it as a kind of evolution of of radio are they separate media to to your understanding in a, in a way it's the answer to that is complicated it's kind of yes and no so here's the funny thing i get into podcasting because me and another guy who worked with at marketplace wanted to have our own show at, this is like 2008 before podcasting is really widely being listened to it's happening for sure there's some already some popular shows but not many and we just wanted a radio show and there was no way because the public radio world is very is relatively small and there's only 24 hours in a day and by the way a big chunk of it is taken up by bbc world service here <laughs> people just like buy bbc world service right okay so it's like there's only so many hours in the day the weekends had its own and a lot of those shows happen at the same time every day all along the weekdays then on the weekends, the separate kind of programming, but there's only so many slots for shows. And we, who was going to give a couple of radio reporters a show? It's not easy. And a lot of those shows and public radio in the States have been going on forever, ever, and ever. Still shows that have been going on for decades. So seemed really hard to break into. 
And it was like, well, we'll just make our show that we had this idea for called the Dinner Party Download as a podcast because it's the only way to do it. And it'll almost be, by the way, it's almost what I'm talking about. We'll do this as a test or like basically a proof of concept sure. and show it to our radio overlords and they'll turn it into a podcast. And amazingly, that's what happened. Like we did it as a podcast. It's got right at a time when nobody cared about this. It, like a a Apple iTunes picked it as one of their top new podcasts of the year. Today, that would be a huge deal at the time. It was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. But it did catch our overlord's eyes. And they were like, oh, well, maybe we'll give you guys a little time in your radio workday to work on this podcast thing that seems to be doing something. And for years, we did that. And it couldn't make money at the time, especially. There was no, nobody wanted to advertise or any of that kind of stuff. So it was like, we have to, if you want to keep doing this, we're going to have to figure out how to make it a radio show. And it was only a 15 minute show by design. It was a 15 minute show that would be really easy to listen to. The idea was that it was going to talk about all the stuff you'd want to talk about at your dinner party. And you could listen to it on the way to the dinner party and get your like, hit your fix of culture stuff. And you could be well-informed at the dinner party once you got there. That was the shtick. Okay. And they, but to make it a public radio show, we were going to have to make it an hour because the only half hour public radio show in America is marketplace. So we weren't going to sell a half hour show. We weren't going to sell a 15 minute show. It had to be an hour. So we had to expand it to become a radio show. And then it became a little bit less like a podcast at that point. It wasn't as kind of, it was still effervescent. There was what we did was add a whole bunch of segments. So in a way it was very podcast. It was kind of like quick hits and stuff. But uh, the radio show became more popular. The podcast became more popular for a while, but then there were other... Is this like the early 2010s you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And then along came all these podcasts that all each... There were like a million movie podcasts. You didn't have to come to our show to get movie stuff. There were a million movie stuff. You didn't have to come to our show to get food stuff. There were a million food podcasts. So it, it, anyway, it's interesting your question, like is podcast a, podcasting... For me, it wasn't. For me, like... A, Podcasting was a way to do radio, and then our podcast show became more like a radio show. And the moment when I realized that podcasting was its own thing, ah, oh, man. Also, it's hard for me to differentiate that because a lot of what the best podcasts, in my opinion, are kind of come out of American public radio and probably British public radio, too, in the sense that there was a lot of like This American Life was a blueprint for a lot of the nonfiction storytelling, audio storytelling that is done now, I think. And they also started doing things like doing multiple episodes about the same thing or This American Life. The Serial is an offshoot of This American Life. There were some of the same people behind This American Life made Serial and Serial is the moment where podcasting takes off. So for me, there's like a big crossover between those two things. Um, I do remember though, this was interesting was that I feel like that was public, that was podcasting for a while it was kind of defined by in certain ways was defined by public radio or a certain level of it was defined by public radio. Then there were guys just talking to each other in the basement, which was an, another thing that I feel like has swept into prominence. And the moment that I realized that was happening was when I went to the podcast movement convention in like 2016 or 2015 or something. And there were all of us that had been kind of doing podcasts in public radio since like 2008. And a lot of us were up for awards in various categories when they gave out awards. And we actually won that year. But there were a bunch of 
public radio things that lost to shows that none of us had ever heard of. And we were like, and it was like, we're a lot of these guys. Yeah. Like they sport shows. It was like, what? And then, <laughs> and that's when I realized there's like almost a commercial and just in the same way that public radio is an alternative to the commercial world in the U S there was now a commercial, yeah, yeah, yeah. like more popular and populist kind of podcasting going on that, simultaneously to it. And it was, uh, it was humbling actually. You know, it's interesting cause I, I've just come back from a, a, a podcasting slash radio conference and that debate still goes on. And I think it's less about the artifact itself and more about the the distribution and the accessibility. Cause I was arguing that, you know, I'm a film studies guy who's come to podcasting without coming via radio. You know what I mean? So I don't have any of the, you know, the, the cues or the interests or the processes in my mind about what radio should be in order to get my podcast out. But so I'm kind of, I've learned about it independently and autodidactically in, in a sense. And it means that I'm not, beholden to, to some of these things that these radio guys think, oh, you must do that to be a sort of a professional audio, you know, production in a way. Yeah, that's true. And I've, I've had to kind of disabuse myself of some radio things, particularly in public radio. This is still something that I find a little bit hard to shake. You can actually tell me to what extent I've shaken it at all is like in public <laughs> radio, there's a big thing about, it's not about you. It's about whatever you're talking about. This American Life changed that in a big way in that the whoever is telling the story is really involved in the story. Very often it's a personal story that they're telling, but in, I came from the news side of it and it was all about focus on who you're talking to, focus on the story that you're telling or the person's story that you're telling or the news story that you're telling and take yourself out of it. And I do think that podcasting, it's very clear that that message has been received to a lot of the podcast world, that even if you're a reporter who is now, you reported a story on a true crime thing that happened and now they're turning it into an eight-part true crime podcast, that your involvement with the pod, with the true crime telling of the story is as important as the story itself. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. There's this idea that you need to be personally involved. Sure. I, I call that, I've just written about that and I called it the self-reflexive tendency. <laughs> so the idea that you have a relationship to the, to the subject in the personal sense, so whoever you're interviewing, but also in the broader kind of abstract sense about how am I, how, how is me being here impacting on the story? And I think that's really interesting, I think, in, in film as well, because it, it, it creates a slightly different angle to film criticism, which maybe we can talk about. But it, it, it's interesting you say that because in terms of the movie podcast, which I want to come on to talking about now, because I listened to the first episode just the other day, the one on Paul Verhoeven's Turkish Delight, and... Unlike ours, it comes across as very fully formed. You know, if you go back and listen to our first episode, God, I don't even want to think about it. But, you know, it's completely produced and it has a structure. And, you know, your voice is excellent. And the way that you the way that you can read the script to sound like it's not being read is a clear radio technique that you bring to it. And I just wondered, you know, tell us a little bit about getting the movie gig and, and the discussions around what that podcast would be and your sort of central role in in the whole production of it really it's all very nice of you to say i will say that my first podcast the dinner party download that i mentioned earlier there were every year when we did a year-end best of episode it was always this idea of like let's do something fun why don't we go and like rerun our first episode and like have clips from our first episode now was always just like no no one must ever (laughs) it is so like we sound so bad and so stilted it's just awful we're talking too fast anyway nothing's landing 
so thanks. I'm glad that it worked the first episode. I would say, uh, well, first, uh, I, to the extent that you're interested, you can cut this if you want to, but how I got the gig was I had worked on another similar, similar in the sense that it's storytelling about movies, podcast called Zoom. This was, I always say, came out just before the pandemic when you could use the word Zoom and it wouldn't immediately mean a, a Zoom meeting. It could be like the Zoom on a camera. Uh, and it was hosted by the great Amy Nicholson, who's now a critic for the New York Times and was at the time Variety. She's also on the podcast Unspooled and the film podcast. And it was basically like a historical, it was for focus features. And the idea was that it was every time focus had a movie out that they wanted us to do an episode about, we would take the genre that the film was in and we do kind of like the history of the genre, where it came from. And which is fascinating and fun to put together. We didn't do a ton of them, but among the people who heard it was a friend of our um, composer, the guy who did the music for it, uh, Sam Clements over at uh, Picture House, and a great, great guy. And he knew, uh, I think that he then met at a party, one of the people from movie and they were saying, we want to do a podcast and we don't want it to be a typical, um, like chat show podcast about movies. Gotcha. We want it to be like a film history podcast. And there aren't weirdly that many of, there aren't that many movie storytelling shows. There's tons of people talking about movies, but there's not that many people doing kind of documentary style thing. So. I had unwittingly put myself in the position of like having a rare talent or, or rare ability or something or rare uh, resume. And so we talked and over the course of a few months decided to push forward. I'd had this idea, but first every season of the movie podcast, for those who don't know, is about a different topic. It takes a, a different way into talking about movies. And that first season was about movies that were huge in one country at not well-known anywhere outside of that country. And I'd come to that idea through, I had that idea to do that through music because I'd been in the Netherlands and this guy who's a huge music hero in the Netherlands had died and I had no idea who this guy was, but the country was in mourning like Kurt Cobain had died. And I had that idea that this would be amazing to do with movies. So I pitched that idea to them and they went with it. And I don't know, I think maybe, why did it come across so fully formed? there's probably two reasons one is that between the end of dinner party download which was much more of a film it was like a a, a arts and culture magazine show where it was like two guys who were happy-go-lucky me and my co-creator of the show my co-host on the show were like two guys going through the world of culture and eating food and meeting people and like learning interesting things about culture that you can share at a dinner party that was like had more of that vibe i went from that to doing a lot of um, after that show ended, working for companies like Crooked Media and Wondery right. were really about narrative storytelling. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'd done narrative storytelling because I was a writer, but I hadn't done a ton of it recently in my audio work. And so I like learned from those guys idea of how to do a cold open, you know, like trying to grab the audience right away with like some sort of scene that kind of captures the imagination. And I've been doing a lot of these kind of things. I worked on several of these, like miniseries, sort of narrative miniseries. So I kind of had a structure in my head from having worked with those guys before, and I just kind of used that structure and those styles to tell this story. And 
Also, that I'm a huge fan of the Netherlands, and the first episode is about Paul Verhoeven's uh, um, Turkish delight. And so not only was I talking about movies, which is super cool to tell the story of this crazy movie, I was talking about a city that I, uh, it was shot in Amsterdam, which is a city that I love, that I'm very familiar with, and I know the history of it. I was just like super excited to tell that story. So that really helps it. The Netherlands, my favorite country, home to more bikes than people, a modest land of small homes where people drink beer out of small glasses but also a country where in 1973, a quarter of the population went crazy for a film that sounded like this. How does that work? I'm Rico Galliano, and on June 3rd, the curated streaming service MUBI, the best place to catch beautiful and often mind-blowing movies from across the planet, invites you to join me for the MUBI podcast, a front-row seat to the great stories behind great movies. This first season, it's a trip around the world as I dive into films that were monster hits in one country and nowhere else. We'll make stops in India, Brazil, Nigeria, and we're starting, yes, in the Netherlands with the Dutch classic Turkish Delight. A crazy erotic melodrama made in a very different time. Complete freedom. You know, I didn't put on a bathrobe between takes. In a country going through some very big changes. From Town Hall, the carriage goes to West Church and smoke bombs explode along the route. And a movie that blew millions of Dutch minds. We were stunned when the movie came out. I mean, over like four months, five months, the lines were still around the block. That had never happened before in Holland. It's a crash course on another culture through the lens of a film that broke all the rules, featuring the voices of the people who made it. Anyhow, my name is Paul Verhoeven, and I'm the director of a Dutch film called Turkish Delight. The premiere of the movie podcast, your audio atlas to a world of great cinema. Follow us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It, it really does feel like when you're listening, a, a kind of cinematic travelogue. I mean, you even introduce yourself at the beginning as an arts and travel reporter rather than a film critic. And you definitely get the sense of wanting to evoke a sense of place. And I think that that comes through all of the seasons as well, you know, through voice, narration, sound design, as, as you've said. And again, I think it relates to this idea of kind of the idea of maybe it's a genre that needs naming something like narrative film criticism. Mm. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, is, is that that set sort of sense of having an experience for the listener, an intention to set them in a in a place? Because we we often when we do our live shows, for example, I'm really interested in that idea that the the audience or the 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 listener feels like that they actually were in the audience mm. and can hear the sort of ambiance of what's going on. So the the, the post film Q and A has a sort of texture to it that you can you can sort of identify or feel yourself involved with, even though you're just listening on your earphones. Yeah, I mean, certainly in that first season, because it is like a travelogue. It was designed like every episode is about a different movie from a different country, and it is about like setting up what that country is like, um, for sure. But I do think it's kind of like the main thing is having, it's just, it's storytelling. I think in every story that when you're telling a story, you want to kind of set a time and a place and the, the hero or heroes within that place and that you're going to follow through. 
and there's going to be an arc. I just think that that's important. I will also, I'll also say though, that I do think that public radio, like it's kind of a good thing to have been a reporter particularly the kind of reporting I was doing where it was features. It wasn't like, uh, I was doing news spots where it's like, here's why the India just bought 20 pounds of uh, 20 tons of gold or something for the, why that's important to the markets. But often it was trying to tell, uh, you know, a feature very often. I was an international reporter. So it was like setting pretty quickly for an audience, like, where are we and, and why does it matter? And using sound to do that. And it's always, that's always just been important to me and part of it. I, and I get, maybe it's also coming from a cinematic background where it's like, I want to create little movies there. I'm not the first person to say this. I think it might've been, can't remember who said it, but like radios are the best movies there are because you're sure this, you create you know, in your head. Yeah, exactly. For each person is like, a, you're bringing your personal, you're helping somebody basically create a movie in their mind. So maybe that's why that is important to me and why it's just a natural part of it. And it is, it does always bother me when there's too much, like there are podcasts out there that are very well respected and are actually really good in their own way, but they're, it's like a person talking and telling you the story without anything except maybe music. And that can totally work and be very effective. But to me, I want as many bells and whistles as I can. Like if I can get actual sound from the place that we're talking about, that's fantastic. If I can get like you know, sound effects of things going up, you know, just like anything to make it a a rich audio experience. It's interesting that you said about there that, you know, that the way that movie, movie, they had an interest in having a podcast, putting a podcast together that wasn't just talking to directors, although there is a bit of that in your, in your show, you do episodes in that way. But I just wondered if you think about the, the, the number of say companies that are not say media broadcasters to start with whether it be like cinema chains they've all got a podcast now and some are half decent some are just recorded q a's and stuff like that they don't put a lot of effort in i just wondered where what does movie see as the the role of the podcast in relationship to its wider interest in you know its commercial interest but also its sense of its own brand you know what i mean it's an incredibly rare company in the sense that they really, I mean, like they really have, even though they're a for-profit company, they're not a non-profit company. I do feel like it's bizarrely mission driven and it's, the mission is just to like, and, and it's pretty simple. It's very, it, it makes it actually difficult in some ways because it's like a broad and very simple, thing. but, uh, it's just to like elevate great movies of any kind like, if it's just a, a really brilliant piece of filmmaking, it's just like anything to elevate that and to elevate movie going and to make people and to, you know, sort of celebrate and help people who love movies see more great movies that especially ones they might not otherwise see or that deserve championing. And it's like to that end, they are interested. I mean, the first thing that was fascinating was that they very specifically, this also goes for movies magazine is that it's not just about promoting movies that are on movie. They just like any, in fact, like the season that we're preparing right now, I'm almost a little worried about, like there's not a single that is available on movie. And we actually got some flack for the first season of the podcast because we're doing these deep dives into movies that are, can be hard to find. So sure. not Turkish delight, but others people were like, I want to watch this now and I can't see it on movie. And we're like, that's because we're about any great cinema. So that, that is one thing. But why they didn't just want to do, I mean, I think the other thing is that 
everything movie does has to be kind of like I know that I'm sounding like a brand in that either way. That's fine. That's I've fine. worked through a lot of brands and a lot of places, and I am pretty like amazed constantly at the fact that this exists. But like, they're about doing the best work. Like, I there was a point where it was kind of like, what's the shtick of our show? Mm. Is there a shtick? Like, is, maybe we should only ever talk about every every season that the the topic of our show changes. And it was like we could just keep doing. There's a lot of countries in the world. We could do every single country. What's the movie that's huge in that country and not well known outside of it? And it was kind of like, yeah, but you know, we, there's so much more to explore and there's so much more stuff to do. Let's do. It's basically they want to do anything that's interesting and anything that's excellent. It was, it was really like we don't want a shtick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want the shtick to be that it's great. Like that if there is a thing that unites all the things in movie world, it is that it is all excellent. Like the website should look really good and the posters should look clean and beautiful and the movies we promote should be awesome. And the, the, and the magazine should be like, it's not just like, you know, a stapled magazine. It has to be like perfect bound and have like great graphic design and everything. And it. it's just like, they want something that is more than just like, sounds like we put effort into it and is like awesome. And it's not easy. I can tell you that making you, you probably know this from, you know, maybe having done it yourself, but it's like making podcasts at all is not easy. And making, uh, like a documentary style podcast is tricky. Oh no, with, without a doubt. I mean, it, interestingly, I've, I've done two or three episodes that are kind of akin to audio documentary in that, in that way. We did one on psychiatry recently. Um, but we have no, we have no budget and we have no creative production behind it. So it's just me and Neil. And that's what stops us really from from being able to do that. Um, and also, I mean, it's interesting because I think that you, there is a kinship, I think, between our between the cinematologists and the movie podcast. But you're kind of more on the journalistic side of that, and we're on more on the academic side of that. If you would sort of to to compare them, but I think it's interesting. Our maybe I feel sometimes that our growth is handicapped by well the fact that we're not stars and we haven't got big brand names attached is one thing, but also we've been very clear about editorial and creative control. You know what I mean? Any anytime anybody comes and says, oh, you know, we're, we're just worried. We just want to do exactly what you said, which is we want to, we want to make decisions and make the best thing for its own sake. So it's, you know, there's a, there's definitely a sim, a similarity there, but I just wondered about, about your sort of, uh, you know, you can be as, um, as diplomatic as you want in this answer, but I just wondered where, where is the sort of dynamics of your editorial and creative control over the show? No, I mean, we have a bunch of people from within the company that are all super podcast fans as well as giant movie fans who, uh, movie fans and a movie fans who sort of chime in on the show when we're, I, I'd say the most editorial can like sort of uh, confabbing is in coming up with the, what the season will be and what the movies will be that we cover. But once we're going, it's like, I, I'm given a surprising, I'm not given total, I would say editorial control, which actually would. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pressure there. It's it's not just that. It's also like I'm. It, it is surprising as somebody who really does like to be left alone to do their creative work. It is also surprising if you're left totally alone to do your creative work. You're like, wait a minute, does this suck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, you're like, this may be terrible, especially after you've lived with it for a really long time. You're like, I think maybe all of this is off. Yeah, know the feeling. And you really need somebody to go like, okay, this part is awful and this part isn't. You're you're all right. 
So uh, there, there are definitely people who like are constantly involved on a weekly basis and like checking in and saying like, how's the process going and listening to stuff and commenting on it and all that kind of stuff. But I would say that I'm given a surprising amount of, of editorial control, mainly because I, I feel like it's a company that weirdly works. I'm going to, this is going to sound so self-aggrandizing and I don't put myself in the same company as the people I'm going to be. Right you know, hinting at, but it's like, it's a company that is about raising the work of auteurs, right? You know, great filmmakers and working with great filmmakers and finding the singular visions. Exactly. That's the point. That's exactly right. Maybe not even filmmakers that anyone's heard of, but if they've got a singular vision, that is like the movie thing. And I think that that works too, that it's like they want, it's interesting what we'll talk about a topic for a season and it'll be like, well, this is the topic that kind of might be the one that is like most jiving with whatever movie's doing at that time or that the you know world is talking about or something. But there's always a question of, well, Rico, are you interested in that? Like, do you want, they know that on some level, if I'm like, I could do it, I'll be a worker bee. But like, if I'm not interested, it just won't be as awesome <laughs> on some level. And I would do it because I, you know, but they're, they're really, it's surprisingly cool about that, that it's like they want, and there are definitely episodes where I'm kind of like, I'm pitching you this episode. It may not be the one that you guys want to do so much, but I really want to do it. And there's at least one episode per season where it's like, it's there because that's the one I was just really jazzed about, you know. But I got, I, I really got the sense that you were enjoying the whole season during the, the, the needle drop series. And yeah. as I was listening, I kind of realized that like you're quite similar to Neil I think in terms of having film and music almost symbiotically related to each other in in your cultural identity you know I hope that I mean you can you can sort of confirm that or reject that but it's you know it, it seemed to really come through the themes that you wanted to draw out in the in the needle drop season so did that sort of fulfill a lot of that desire to talk about film and music together, you know, in a really in-depth way. Oh man, I'll, I would say that about all of the seasons, by the way, I do feel really, I mean, like it wasn't my idea. The second season was about movie theaters, for instance. And it, that wasn't my idea. Um, that came from within the, one of the other people on our team, but it was like, once it was brought up, it, it was a more difficult one to do because it's harder to do a thing about movie theaters in a non-visual sense, I think, in some ways. Like if you think about, oh, you're going to do. But it was like that. I feel so. I worked at a movie theater. I worked in actually a faded movie palace in Pittsburgh at a time when nobody was going to that movie palace at all when I was uh, in high school and into, sorry, in college and just have massive memories from it and felt so, so strongly about it. And it was like, I, we have to do that season now that you brought it up because like, I can imagine just like, it matters so like movie theaters matter so freaking much <laughs> to me. And definitely, so it's true of all of the seasons. And the first season was like, I am a travel writer. And I love travel. And it was like, this is a way, this was also made during COVID. So it was like a way to travel uh, during COVID in my, in our minds anyway. And, but definitely that season there were, and especially certain episodes, like the Scala episode in that season, I played for friends and they were like, you basically were born to make this episode. And by the way, I had not heard of Scala until we did that season. That's just around the corner from where I live, you know, the Scala, which is where it was such, such a great episode. I, lo I absolutely loved it. I'm glad. Thank you so much. But, but in the, in the mo in the, uh, needle drops episode for sure. That was what was the, what was the one in there like the Donnie Darko episode? Yeah, 
<laughs> it's that is because it's hitting on so many things. The early two thousands were a really special time to me, and the era that it was set in was this, you know the late nineteen eighties is a special time for me. The band Tears for Fears is an incredibly special band for me. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not alone. I, this was complete coincidence. I will say this is not why we chose this editorial direction, but after we had chosen that as a topic, talking about movies and needle drops and movies. We did a survey of movie subscribers and the people who responded anyway, they were listing other things they were interested in other than movies that number one was, I don't think I'm alone in this. I feel like a lot of movie people are also into music. And especially when we talk about pure cinema, I think about moments of pure cinema and a lot of them are just images and music. Yeah. Music and sound driven. Yeah. 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 It's a great way to move things forward without dialogue. Yeah. In terms of the themes. Do you have a, a quite a clear sense of, you know, if you're talking about the Scala episode, are you talking about any of the any of the needle drop episodes? Is there a sense in advance that you know what the theme is, but yet with all of the great interviews that you get, it seems like it must push you in different directions and then there's got to be adaptations all the time. So it must be a I mean, I'm just thinking the way I edit at times I find it I find the direction in the edit rather than having that prescribed beforehand, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I do not work with an outline. And sometimes I have uh, like a vague outline in my head, but I don't work with an outline because I find that as soon, you're absolutely right. As soon as you start interviewing people, it all goes out the window. And you can even interview somebody and go, okay, now I know what this story is about. You'll get off the line after having interviewed someone and they'll have given you this beautiful arc of a story. And you're like, oh, okay, this led to this. And then this happened, this happened. And then the movie was made and then it came out, and this happened and it was great perfect this is a wonderful narrative and then you interview the next guy and they're like that's all bullshit that's not how it happened at all yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. you've got to either choose one or you're going to have to redux it in some way that takes both of those points of view into account it's like you absolutely can't uh know totally in advance but i do think that it's important to go in thinking that you have one because it just shapes how you interview people like a wondery has this very very difficult processes or when you're a writer for how they do um, prepare a, a, a miniseries. And the idea is that you, without doing too much research, write an outline of like the way you wish the story plays out. They're like, okay, I don't think you read the story. Now go research it and see if that's really how it happened. Then you go and research it. You're like, okay, this is more how it happened. And then they sign off on that. And then it's like you start doing your interviews and then they say, okay, now write, rewrite the outline based on the interviews that you've done. So you're constantly having to do that. And I basically do that, but at a much more compressed space of time and don't have to write it out <laughs> each time. And it's also great, isn't it, getting the reaction? Because there's certain times I was listening where you've seen genuinely kind of shocked and surprised at what you'd heard. And that fed into the interest of the of listening. So for example, the musicologist on, on episode one about 2001, he, he was sort of really bringing out kind of new ideas that, that that you were sort of reacting to in a, in a in a fascinating way and then neil wanted me to mention the um the folk implosion kids score from randall poster because he's been listening to that apparently a lot a lot recently so yeah it's, it's great when these these sort of little nuggets come out of the interviewees and then you're you're able to kind of riff on that and move forward i think it's you know it's a testament i think that to to sort of interviewing well that then you can you can then weave that into a narrative as a whole, you know? 
Oh, absolutely. And that's what you're 100% looking for. The, the worst is when you're interviewing somebody and they say nothing that you haven't heard before. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're always trying to get them to say something that you heard haven't heard before. There's still, like, I think there's still some value in telling stories that, like, say a filmmaker has told before because the chances are most people haven't heard it. You know, fans like you and me will, for certain filmmakers, we've heard everything they've ever done or whatever. But it's still like, I'm always like digging for something that'll make me go, really? Because if I'm going, really? That's, that's what happened? Uh, or that's, that something that spectacular, ridiculous happened, then the audience is going to think that too. One of the issues that I find a lot with, with podcasting now, and I think it's maybe in the last two or three years when it's become more, almost completely fully commercialized is that it used to be that, that there was a space there where people would say things that they wouldn't ordinarily say. You know, I think that's what Mark Maron has sort of dined out on a lot, you know, and these in intimate interviews where they'll say something that they've never said anything else anywhere else. And I think that a lot of film podcasts have, have gone down the road of being, I just sort of celebrities back slap, slapping each other. I mean, I don't know whether you like the kind of round table, you know, you've got two directors or two actors sort of saying, oh, you're great. No, you're great. No, you're great kind of thing. Or whether it becomes another strand of PR, you know, because I think w one of the things that podcasting did was just make us realize how crap the sort of press junket interview circuit is. And I, I don't know whether whether we're, it's kind of lost that a little bit, you know, where podcasting now has just become, again, feeding a sort of PR cinema industry. Yeah, I mean, uh, the it's difficult. By the way, I should note even though we've talked on and on about, you know, how I love making these documentary style episodes, we do in between each season, a regular season of the show, we have these bonus seasons where uh, bonus episodes where we do just interview filmmakers um, about their latest film. And it's definitely two people in a room talking. But even there, I agree with you. The whole idea is to try to it's and it's always been like uh, even in my old radio show the dinner party download the idea was to knock people off their talking yeah apps. yeah and by the way it doesn't even necessarily have to be like this is what i i hope that more celebrities would get into is that it's not about gotcha journalism either it's just that i want you to i i actually care about artists and i usually care very much about the art that i'm helping them popularized there is like a an uneasy detente i guess between like me as an interviewer and the person who is promoting their film i do know that on some level that we're a promotional arm that we're helping them promote the film but at least on my show we're not talking to them unless i'm really either into them as an artist or into their into their movie and very often both and i want it to come across as best as it can like i'm not in the business i've never wanted to make the kind of show where it's about like this is maybe one of the reasons why i'm not a film critic is because i maybe don't have the cojones for saying often to a filmmaker i actually otherwise admire yeah you know what your thing sucked it's important i love film critics and i think what they're doing is 100 percent important and the best ones don't just say it sucked they say here's what's going on here's how it relates to the world why it's not working in the world that we're living in you know all sorts of different things that they're taking into account but i don't have the constitution for it and i so i i'm i'm really in the like this is awesome everybody like let's get into it uh business and one of the ways you do that is by appearing like a human being you know what i mean not just somebody who's like reading a script 
And there are times when like you can hear it in people's voices. I'm not sure and I'm sure they don't even realize it where it's just like they're saying the same thing that they've said a thousand times. And it makes somebody, I feel anyway, I would be less inclined to take them as seriously as an artist and to take their movie seriously. If A, all they're doing is reiterating talking points or B, to your point, just kind of going, you're right. Every time I see any movie behind the scenes thing, it's like working with X was a dream. And it's like, it wasn't always, maybe it was, but it wasn't always a dream. And you will seem more like a, an interesting person who's doing something of value that takes effort if you tell me about the difficulties and challenges that it took to do, you know? Um, that's where it, I agree with you. It starts to become root and almost pointless. It's kind of like when you see some of these, you know, things on, I, I don't even know who's producing that. Like I, my mail is through Yahoo. So I often end up clicking on things on the Yahoo front page that I otherwise wouldn't. And it's like, oh, well, some, somebody did a some little clip about some movie that came out. And it's just, you know, a clip of somebody on the red carpet saying something rather insipid or like not that particularly interesting on a red carpet. Because what the hell else are you going to say to somebody on the red carpet? That's rare that you're going to say anything that interesting. It's like, why is anybody even bothering watching this? Why do you care? There's nothing being gained from hearing them do five seconds that they've said to 10,000 other people. So yes, I do think that there is a version of that that's maybe happening more in podcasting. It's a little bit different though, don't you think, in the sense that there is the understanding, I think, in podcasting more than maybe other mediums that you're at least supposed to joke around. You know, like you're supposed to, it's almost like you're watching, you're listening to the interview, not so much for a new insight as to hear the person just as if you're at a party with them. And that's new and that's different than what we had before, but I'm not sure that I'm getting as much out of it. Yeah. And I, but I think that it, to me, I think that that, that level of authenticity was kind of original, maybe around that sort of, uh. 2016 to sort of 21 22 i mean again i don't want to i don't i don't want to sort of say you know this just doesn't happen anymore and, and but i just think that now podcasts are so people know what they are and there's almost a sort of performed authenticity at, at, at times where you know just listening to certain certain shows i just felt you know people talking oh wow they've really they've really got something there and maybe it was something to do maybe with the idea of the podcast space being some some sort of new environment that 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 people could could you know get in touch with another person and and people were searching for that kind of that, that kind of realism I, I think yeah i would say like i still think this is true in podcasting and maybe true in everything but increasingly is that like authenticity is the coin of the realm that's really what people are into i mean i think it's one of the reasons why companies like movie and like it to a you know bigger commercial extent probably a24 are like huge is because like there's this feeling that they're not doing anything that they don't want to be doing passionately you know what i mean and that the filmmakers yeah. are doing something that they're it's like you said a singular vision or whatever but in terms of what we're talking about it it's if anything starts to feel like it's programmatical or de rigueur then by definition it's not authentic in feeling anymore maybe it is authentic but at least it's not authentic feeling and it's something to worry about. And I do worry that the kind of podcasting is getting tarred 
this is a kind of a much huger conversation about podcasting that I wonder if people in the in the cinematologist audience are <laughs> totally interested in. Oh, they'll listen. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I love. God bless them. Um, I, maybe I'm straying away from the initial topic a little bit, but I worry. I'll be. I'll be honest. I worry more about. And this, by the way, you're hearing. This is somebody who's kind of fascinated by some of these conversations. By the way, but I'm more worried about the Joe Rogans of the world, in a way, in the sense that there is an idea now that that is all podcasting is, and it's not like. And I'm not going to write off Joe Rogan entirely. There are definitely many episodes of issue. I don't listen to it religiously or anything, but I'll come across excerpts of it on YouTube. And occasionally it's kind of like, that guy's actually not that bad an interviewer, you know? But then, of course, there are other times when I'm like, this guy is actively hurting the world. But regardless, just the idea of like mainly bros talking about mainly male-centric and a certain kind of male-centric bro stuff for endless amount of hours and thinking that they really know a lot about it and not necessarily knowing a lot is like how all of podcasting is being tired and there's space for it there's space for everything at any medium but it's like i the the example i've been using is uh, if you look at the new york times anytime they have an article about podcasting and you look at the comment section the comments from people who should be the prime audience for a lot of really well done podcasts in the world including some by the new york times itself there will be people that are just like podcasting is ridiculous i do myself a favor by not listening to it there's no need to it sounds like it's a bunch of people who think they know a lot don't know anything and who cares good riddance if it's an article about how the podcasting industry is like not getting as much advertising dollars it's like good riddance who cares as though podcasting is a genre and not a form of media you know what i mean and it's almost i, I worry about it for the podcasting industry at large because there is really fine work being done and you know conversations that are i think fascinating and are not like the conversations you're getting anywhere else and i worry those are getting like buried in a tidal wave but much easier to produce other stuff you know do you feel that yeah i mean I, to be honest with you i think it's it's difficult from my perspective because because this is a side it's not a side hustle but it's it's a project that aligns with my day job which is just you know, managing a big university course. So I don't worry about things like audience or, or advertising or money. Um, it, it is just basically a labor of love that me, me and Neil do. And we've managed to carve out a little bit of a tiny space for ourselves in terms of, you know, we've got, we haven't got a huge audience, but we've, we've got a kind of level of respectability, I think that be particularly in the UK and, and within, within sort of like academic journalistic circles. So what, what what frustrates what frustrates really is the fact that that we we don't have the time to put as much into the, the 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 expansion of the podcast as we maybe could, and we don't have the time to really polish to the extent that we we would like to. So, but we, we've reconciled the fact that that we're we're in a certain space, and it's actually the doing of it that we enjoy as much as the the kind of outcome. Like oh, we've got you know 3000 listeners or whatever it whatever it might be we've got to be kind of into the, the 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 i mean it sounds pretentious but the artistry of making it or the process of making it like having this conversation is the is the thing for us and the the 
the release and who listens to it is kind of the secondary thing. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, uh, there's also no question that it's like commercialization changes things. Once once people find that there's money to be made in anything, it ends up changing things in terms of more people getting involved in it and others' stuff, and therefore being and the money being put into that stuff and lifting it up and uh, all that. It's it's complicated. It's really it's also very strange yeah, to me yeah. because like I was there not right at the beginning. I'm not like a pioneer of it or anything like that, but very early on. And knowing a lot of people in the space and all of them having a similarly to you kind of like at base, it's like there is something important that we want to do here that is more than just fun or, you know, whatever. There's, there's a, there was a seriousness of intent, whether it was a serious artifact or not that came out of it, you know, it could be a very silly comedy thing or something, but there was like, there was a certain amount of kind of similarity of thought about what everybody was trying to do and then like watching it become an industry has been crazy it's kind of like if we're talking about movies here it's like i imagine what it must have been like to be the guys in hollywood you know with a barn that they rotated to get sun to come through in the right way and they knew every other person with a barn you know between the edisons and everything in the world and then suddenly there's like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. a huge industry springing up around it where movie palaces being made and of this kind of stuff it must have been simultaneously exciting and potentially lucrative for some of them but also like what's going on here like what are what are you doing um yeah it's it's been fascinating and it's like there's definitely the good and the bad and we're at a moment right now where there's a lot of strength well listen you know the as a purveyor of audio cinematic creativity you you definitely are up there you know very influential to to me particularly in terms of the way that you make your your show and you know i think that oh, thanks there is something interesting and very important about the audio space and the way it it kind of covers cinema it's doing something that written criticism i don't think does do what do you what do you think is the difference well i think that the that i think that there's a sense in which the best podcasting is actually working through ideas rather than trying to finalize an answer to whether something is good or bad or whether there is a um you know a a a, a kind of way of understanding film culture that we should all be party to i mean again th- th- this happens on 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 podcasts as well i'm not saying it doesn't but th- i think that in in the written world in the written word or the culture of of written film criticism it's funny because there, there was a lot of argument about this on online on on social media about at one point, I think it was last year, where people were saying that everybody knows that journalistic reviewing, they're writing from a subjective position. It's implied in the reviewing, right? But I think a lot of writers write as if what they're saying is gospel. (laughs) Do do you get what I mean? So it's almost as if they're writing with a tone of, not with, I think this, this is my opinion, I'm reviewing this, and getting to know me as a reviewer, will reveal the my kind of tastes and you're either on board with that or not. That was the sort of blueprint of, you know, uh, newspaper and magazine columnists back in the day. But I think more and more, because we're very ideologically polarized, mm-hmm. writers have to set out their stall about, I am this kind, and this is my politics, and this influences what I think about this film, right? Whereas I think with podcasting, because it's the voice and you can't get around, you know, if you disagree with somebody, you you... you 
on the podcast, it's really hard to say, I disagree with you, therefore you're a bad person. Everything you stand for is shit, you know, uh, and I hope you die because you don't like the same film as me, right? You've got to come at it with an open, with more of an open mind because we're, you're, it, the, for some reason, the podcast space opens up that that level of, of um, open-mindedness in, in its best sense, you know, not all the time. So that's where I see the big... The, yeah. yeah, if it's a conversation, it's kind of like you can leave it with, well, we've kind of gotten back. It's a debate. It's not one person doing their thing. If it's a if it's a conversation, and if in the case of the main seasons of a show like mine, it's more of a documentary that's kind of like, here's what this person says, and here's what this this other person says, and here's kind of a general story that about this film and where it kind of fits culturally into the world, and here's kind of what that might mean. But there's a lot to think about, isn't there? Like maybe the takeaway in a lot of the uh, the takeaway in podcasting, or maybe in audio in general, is there's a lot to think about, isn't there? A lot to unpack, huh? Rather than here's a, something definitive. That's interesting. I had not. But it's interesting how you, you do listen to certain writers who are on podcasts, and they some of them come with that kind of open mind, and other ones are definitely don't. And they the way that they come across in the podcast is well, you know. I, I I kind of understand that you have a different opinion to me, but I'm right. You know, is the tone of the way that they talk, and and like we definitely, you know, Neil and I have set our stall out of that that idea that you res- you you respect what the other person is saying, and you actually take the time to try and engage with why they've got to that opinion, because the process of getting to an opinion in fo- obviously then informs the opinion, so. That that sense of I'm right, you're wrong implies, well, I'm not even going to outline why I've got to this opinion because it's just ideologically pure for me, you know, and I find that kind of problematic, I think. Yeah, there's no discussion. It's really interesting. And I wonder if, I mean, because it's funny if we're we're sitting here saying that maybe there's something inherent in podcasting that allows like a little more of an open-ended resolution at the end uh, or lack thereof is, I guess, what we're saying. It's funny because I think that the popular idea is that it's a bunch of people sitting around exactly like you're talking about that have already formed ideas that are yeah. super hard and are actually just like transmitting it out into the world and not having any kind of like in-depth conversation about it. Or I mean, or not rather than they, bad, you know, yeah, or rather than they're having in-depth conversations, but they already know what they're, uh, you know, what the end result is. Gonna be. Yeah, not for sure. Endless conversations about something that they all 100% agree on. All of this, yeah, they've decided already for sure. Well, listen, Rico, thanks so much for all this time. It's been it's been really great, and uh, yeah, like I say, I really appreciate the, the the show, and I look forward to continuing listening. Obviously, and uh, yeah, it's been great to talk to you. Yeah, ditto. I love having these kind of conversations, and thank you so much for having me and for doing what you did. This is called the Artifact and Living, one of sixteen Andrews instrumentals laced through Donnie Darko, simple and heartbreaking. And to fill the end credits, he imagined a full song, lyrics and all, in the same vein. So one night, he sat down at the piano and just to get the vibe, started replaying this piece. That was me with Rico Galliano. I think you'll agree, cinematologists, regulars, that, you know, that was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So much to sort of think about. And yeah, just to say thanks for again to Rico for taking taking the time out um, and giving us all of that great tape. Neil, 
what did you uh, make of that chat? So much. Um, yeah, it was. I think it was a really rich conversation. Like you sort of said before, cinema criticism podcasting. I think that yeah, that it was just a really kind of heartwarming. I suppose you know just to hear such thoughtfulness about the form of film podcasting and to get a real sense of how someone has come to it from really interesting trajectory. Um, it was really enjoyable, enjoyable conversation. One of the things I thought was really interesting, and this is this is something we will probably talk about more on our bonus episode. We're going to sort of record a bonus straight after this, which kind of talks about film education and uh, film students and and just the kind of the, the state of play with, with sort of young people studying film. And I thought it was really interesting that when you were talking about his, when he was talking about his um, his time at university, which I think echoes our own, he was talking about how it was a kind of explosion, explosion moment that he'd been kind of developing a cinephilia and it comes from an interest and a curiosity and a fandom as so much of it does. And then it gets piqued by these sort of entry point films, you know, and we all have those. And he was talking about Repo Man, which was nice because that was our, our first ever episode. But then how the the moment of university was this moment of kind of opening the eyes to, to what cinema can be in a kind of really, really broad sense. And then I thought it was really interesting that the conversation ended when he was talking about film com, film podcasting. And he, he said this great phrase, you know, that it's um, it can often be sort of endless conversations where people are 100% set on what they already know, which I thought was a great phrase. Um, but that also made me think about where we are in kind of film education, where it feels like that ha- that shift has not just happened in podcasting, but is reflective of where a lot of, unfortunately, sort of young people come to university with a very different reasoning and approach to it and it's it's hard to it's hard to have those moments where you're kind of opening doors for them into what cinema is in a kind of really exciting way so i thought it was kind of telling that the the conversation arced that way given i guess the arc of our time in film education as students and then and then educators and i always find it interesting when there's resonances between education the film industry and uh, and podcasting so i thought that was just something i wanted to to turn note, and I didn't know if you had any any thoughts on on any of those bits, Dario. Before I go on to some other bits of the conversation, yeah, I mean, I think we'll get into this quite a bit, as you say, on the on the bonus. I mean, it was interesting because I was at a conference in in Sunderland on radio and podcasting, and I, you know, without sort of <laughs> bespurching anyone kind of directly, I was sort of aware that that set idea of what a certain medium is was very prevalent in certain people who were who were there and giving presentations and then at the end of the conference I sort of as I, as as Neil you know is my one I like to spark a conversation and see where it goes I did that and there was quite a lot of pushback on the idea you know that podcasting is doing anything different from radio and the idea that there are ways of thinking about media and its use that don't that, that aren't covered in in academia and aren't defined by academia you know what i mean that actually you know the way that that say for example young people or anyone really use media maybe in ways that that people in academia have never thought about you know let alone put into practice you can't it's really problematic to me to then say well it's up to us then to educate them in, into the right way of doing something and it's the same it's a very similar principle in terms of um saying you know as we say in that as Rico and I talked about that idea of you know I'm writing this criticism and the reviewers reserving the right to say well it's implicit that this is all subjective but the tone of the writing is often 
this is how it is. This is the truth of this film, you know what I mean? Or, or the truth of how you should understand this film. Yeah. And a lot of it, again, speaks to what we've talked about a lot, which is that the idea of an aesthetics and an ideology and maybe a more tension-filled relationship between those two things in the in the in the past as opposed to now and i mean that in a kind of productive tension sense form and content than we might be seeing at the moment i think and it's evident in a lot of cinema which we talked about where it feels like there's a very didactic and a very yeah almost asterisked approach to to things so that there's no there's no space for for any kind of tension within it which which should lead to conversation i think that's that's really interesting and it's interesting what you're saying there about the film criticism and i loved i loved your phrase actually the the kind of the idea of a narrative film criticism which seemed to really pinpoint i hope we're doing sometimes but certainly what 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 movie the movie podcast is doing and thinking about it in terms of like paul cobley's definition of narrative in terms of the way something is done you know it's not just that it's a story sorry i was also thinking of that in terms of the book brian yeah yeah, yeah. There's a sort of narrative film criticism in the written form as well. I think that idea of sort of storifying criticism is a really interesting way to think about what, what certain work is going across different media. Yeah, lovely example. Yeah, and just different ways of approaching it, which are not as simple as kind of saying it's all subjective, you know. And I think that you you pulled out where Rico's interest and excitement and passion lies, but it, it's never at the expense of, yeah, kind of rigor research. And I thought it was really interesting to hear about how a lot of the editorial and creative discussion happens at the start of the season and, the, you know, that kind of that mapping out of the territory of a season, I thought was really interesting. Um, and yeah, you know, as someone who likes to see podcasting as a as an act of curation, you know, sort of contemporary curation practice that felt very close to that, where it's like, okay, where are we going to go? What are we going to cover? How are we going to do it? And then that, that that's let go of as the kind of the creative process of kind of putting that into motion sort of takes over. So that was that was really fascinating. Yeah, and I, and I really liked as well what he said about Mubi and the, the sort of brand of Mubi and, and how it ties into the podcast in a way that's not prescriptive and in a way that's kind of like, you know, we're trying to, we're, we're interested in certain things, but we're not necessarily using this as a sort of branded tie-in. It's its own thing. It's an associated piece of creativity and I, and I think that that's really, I mean, you know, in an ideal world, I'd love, love to have that, you know, if we had more time and more budget, it would be great to have that that sort of uh, associative type of production, you know, in a way where there's people doing things that, that maybe even, you know, we wouldn't be involved with, but they're under a cinematologist banner, but it's kind of something something apart from that. And they don't necessarily have to tie in for commercial reasons or anything like that. And I just think that that's where a lot of, non-media based podcasting f f kind of falls down it's like you know if you've got if you've got chains or you've got businesses that are that are creating podcasts it's all about oh how 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 is this another revenue stream and and it's really it's nice that i mean it, you know he must think i mean i didn't say it outright to rico but he must think you know all his christmases have come at once that he's got the, the backing of the of the company but yet there is that level of there seems to be that level of creative autonomy for him yeah, and I was definitely one of those annoyed people in season one who was like, "Why can't I see these films?" Um, again, because the, the the podcasts were so good. But but yeah, I, it was really refreshing to hear about that kind of that kind of approach, which which to me is 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 kind of one of the things that make does make movie stand out as a kind of real kind of transmedia sort of creative company. You know, where the Notebook online, the Notebook print, the podcast, and and the streaming service are all doing something different 
you know, it's all connected. And I thought Rico articulated how movies see it as connected in terms of the, the filmmaker voices that they want to engage with uh, and, and promote. Um, and that, that runs through the films and even, you know, this is something I wanted to sort of move on to, you know, the idea of singular vision, because I think even, you know, looking at the, the you know, season two in the cinemas, you know, that a lot of cinemas are often run, particularly kind of cult rep cinemas are run or founded in their kind of halcyon days by film lovers with a singular vision, Scala being a, a kind of a sort of key British example. And then that led me on to that really loving that conversation around the idea of an auteurist podcasting, not from a kind of like Grant's individualist perspective, but from that very idea, like you say, where filmmaking is a collaborative enterprise with a singular vision at the helm for coherence as much as anything else. And seeing this side of podcasting in that way, you know, there are a lot of people who contribute to the movie podcast, you know, and it is Rico's vision, but it's clear that the development of that podcast and those series and the delivery is a collaborative exercise, which for me is kind of auteurism at its best. And I, I you know, it's, it, I just thought it was really interesting to to start to think of podcasting as, okay, how do, what, what if we think of it as a space for auteurs? Because I think what it does is it shows us like in film, good auteurism and bad auteurism, you know, in terms of, you know, those kind of egos that you talk about so much in the in the episode. Yeah, it's it, it's just refreshing as well to sort of keep thinking about podcasting as a space where there is, you know, a lot of great creative stuff going on. Because I think that, you know, in the circles, the, the, the sort of research circles that I'm in with regards to podcasting, you know, you hear a lot about, oh, it's all now incorporated, you know, it's it's gone back to a, a, a broadcast tradition in terms of structure a lot of the ways. Now loads of people are getting laid off in podcasting. And and I kind of said this at the conference, and, and I think I mentioned it to Rico as well. It's like, it doesn't, <laughs> it sounds terrible to say this, but that doesn't matter to us. You know what I mean? It's like pod, podcasting for us is not about how many people at Wondery have got a job or who, or wherever, you know what I mean? And, and, and again, like, and that's not to sort of, not feel sorry for somebody who's lost a job you know and when people lose jobs it's you know it's terrible but there's a different way of thinking about podcasting i think that goes back to before it became an industry and that's i think still where you find really interesting conversations and interesting work you know in the production side too and and rico made that point himself you know in terms of the, the the comments around podcasting often seeing it as a genre rather than as a form you know seeing it as this kind of monolithic thing with the kind of the Joe Roganness of it all kind of covering everything else like ash. Um, but the reality is that, yeah, that, that form <laughs> the, but formally there is so much stuff that's possible and yeah. And as we have, as we have discovered, and as you sort of, you know, mentioned like audiences gravitate towards those things and an audience is not something that I think is, judged on numbers and we don't judge it on numbers it's judged on the quality and i don't mean that you know just me in terms of interaction and support and the conversation and the feeling that you're doing something because you were right about the process of it for us it's it's all about the process really but there is that kind of part of it where that sense that people are listening that there is a kind of a critical fraternity out there i think has really helped our podcast you know because it's having that kind of focus of well our audience is there that, and we want to honor that. We want to kind of, you know, we want to make sure that we are being as, as kind of thoughtful and as innovative and as um, interesting as we can be given, 
given all of our situations. And I think that's one of the nice things about Mubi as a as a as a company. You know, if companies can be nice in a capitalist sense, but you know what I mean, is that they do seem to pay attention to to that aspect of it, and they do seem to understand that the people who gravitate towards the films that they show and the things that they read are are a particular type of audience, and they they're cognizant of that. They're not um, they're not apathetic, and they're not um, dismissive of it. No, no, I think that's a great place to to, to finish there, Neil. Thanks so much for uh, engaging so thoroughly and curiously with the with the conversation that was great yeah let's let's continue this on the on the bonus shall we sounds great yeah really great conversation and yeah thanks to rico for coming on the show so yeah we're going to head over to the bonus and we'll be back with another episode at some point in the very near future but for now this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening thanks for listening